The warrior hero Beowulf easily slays the monster Grendel, who has long terrorised his kingdom. The greater menace comes when Grendel's mother, mad with grief, comes to avenge her son, nearly killing Beowulf in the process. He's pretty good with a sword, but he learns lessons the hard way, like the fact that monsters mourn too, and mothers most fiercely of all. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, where we ask some of the UK's best and most exciting poets to choose a myth, a folktale or a fairy story that they want to preserve for future generations, saving it from rising waters or from nuclear disaster or from the mundane tragedy of human forgetfulness. What we want to know is what stories they want to leave behind for whatever civilizations or smoking remains come next. They've rewritten their stories, they've reworked them, they've unpacked them and they've jigsawed them back together with all their poetic might and it is my pleasure to bring you the results. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, currently haunting the coastline of the perilous Aegean Sea and joining me this week to help lure sailors to their watery doom are Joelle Taylor, S. Nirashini and Lucia Dove. First up, we have S. Nirashini, who is a Sri Lankan-born, Australian-raised and now London-based writer whose work spans the disciplines of fiction, essays, poetry and performance. Nirashini, hi. Hello, Eleanor. It's great to have you here in the studio with us. It's great to be here. So, I've what chosen Kali, who is one of the deities from the canon of South Asian mythology. Great, so take it away. Black Lullaby. One. Darling girl, it is strange how the sound that you most associate with time is that of a clock. As if such banality. Tick, tock, tick, tock. The sound of a nursery rhyme could obscure the true nature of it, which, if you were honest or listened carefully, sounds more akin to the drowned-out howl of a wolf in descent. Last night we stumbled through languid rivers and pregnant mountains, blackberries rolling on our tongues to sate hunger. We stalked cities, pocketing jade, golden anklets, ruby amulets, metronomes and honour from the husbands of priests, and sliced elegant necks to humour ourselves as our dreams clipped our heels, as our dreams kept account for mothers, as our dreams. I cannot tell you what happened to our dreams. We arrived to the ugly mouth of this city, unmet by vermilion on our black skin, surveying the land holding a kaleidoscope against our eyes, as blades of grass snapped under bare heels. To its decayed fringes we walked and mingled with lost girls, carrion, ghosts. We are home. Home, the only place where pain and shame can stand idle next to tenderness. Our feet circle the red clay of this land and I who stand in the centre of this raucous circle of women converse with the spirits of once beautiful girls on ashy pyres who say, Beauty has its own logic, but so does decay. Beauty has its own logic, but so does subversion. Beauty has its own logic, but so does destruction. By this lake, the colour of ink, I try to teach you things. To speak without concern, 
to laugh at the rhythms of the planets, its vain pretensions to order, to cradle life and death to your breast. Your forehead presses to this gutted floor of this house, to pay your respects, you say, blood squelches between my toes, a sound which makes you laugh. When I comb your hair, a spotted owlet watches over us, perched on a tree, gazing with a crooked glance as you hold a book between your hands of the last female poet, its words a silent threat, a brazen chuckle. Remember all this when eventually you will take my place. Daughter, when you think of eternity, what does it feel like in your chest? A never-ending blackness? Obsidian ink that circles around your waist and spills through your nose? The truth is, truth is more like a single point throbbing, red, unseen, like the blood coursing through your vulnerable jugular vein. Come roam with me, as does the sun through this barren land. I see you, I really see you. There is honour among thieves. Do you know how to love? More importantly, do you know how to detect deceit? Or can you only smother birds with broken wings at 3am? Only read this poem when you are 108, my love, and can tell the difference between sentimentality and truth, and you will finally etch these words onto your thigh. 3. Come listen, put your ear to this. A broken radio presented to me by a small slip of a girl emitting sounds from space, interstellar waves which you find so terrifying. The universe is a noisy place, yet it calls out my name, all 1,008 of them. Lola, Leela, Karmada, Karmani, Sulochana, Trilochana, Saraswati. The one who is desired, the one who desires herself, yet observe paintings in which I am almost imperceptible, a simple shadow in this arena. But when they come, when the battle takes place, on the moment of urgency, you and I will be moulded in stone, standing as testimony as a lion is drawn from the dusky brow of a rich woman. I will be imagined dancing, hands clapping, my right leg extending from the hip socket, exposing that which is found so fearful. Blessings and curses, blessings and curses, blessings and curses. Winds and tides exist in my name, black waves that will welcome you in their arms and negate the sun. I will lead you to fall in love with your best friend's wife, say no to the good thing, self-destruct, disavow art, pleasure, leave home. And in the end, only we will remain. Babies will return to wombs, icebergs will rise on land, mothers will no longer burn, the lost will be reclaimed by the found, the moon will gravitate towards the sea, tongues will curl into throats, stars will collapse on themselves, my body, your body will fold. Why are you just standing there, darling? Take this knife. It is time. Nirashini, thank you so much for that. So what was it that drew you to the figure of Kali? So I guess it's on several fronts. The first, she's everywhere, you know, in art and music, um, paintings. And so it's a figure I'd repeatedly come across. But 
I think if I have to really think about what drew me to her, it was her complexity. So she has this amazing capacity to represent something really monstrous, but also maternal. Um, and also she's described an incredibly sensual and sexual language, which when compared to the other you know, deities is quite unusual. It's quite subversive, which I'm quite drawn to. But also there's such an interesting ways you can look at her. She, her name itself represents time and color. And this work, I guess, is a contribution, a continuation of all these amazing writers and feminist artists who've really delved into what Kali means, um, what it means in the contemporary day, um, what it means to reimagine a story um, which has spanned over 2,000 years. So there's this great tension between continuation and also this present moment where I do feel these issues um, relating to, you know, womanhood and, um, yeah, gender is so alive. So she seems to be this repository for all these chaotic elements associated with femininity that are somehow that somehow associated with fear or suspicion, but as a, a from a modern standpoint, from a kind of contemporary, as you say, feminist lens, there's not that kind of simple morality. You can just kind of cleave her off into a, a force for good or a force for evil. Absolutely, yes. And that's something, that's a, something I wanted to explore in this poem, that you can be a figure who's really powerful and who has, you know, immense you know, influence over the universe, which is what Kali has, but you could also be deeply flawed as well. Um, there are so many difficult things in this moment about being a powerful woman. And you can also be flawed and be a powerful woman and be beautiful and be destructive. And I love that sense of destruction and just not not being having to be anything. Why can't you just be what you are, even if you are deeply both flawed and powerful? Yeah, there is this sense of uh, of this topsy turviness which you which you play around with wonderfully in your imagery. This idea of um, the boundaries between the human and the civilizational and the natural and like the logical and the chaotic are all kind of fluid and porous and you know, very very much topsy turvy. And there does seem to be a sense in which Kali embodies. The thing that we've been brought up, you know, not not to do, which is to idealise a sense of chaos, right? A sense of total mm. abandon, because often that's posited as as childlike, yeah. almost, or as or as a kind of femininity that we want yeah. to reject. Absolutely. So she is, you know, her the femininity she represents is not the, you know, the socially sanctioned type of femininity. And I think if you look at her, where she sits in respect to other deities in the South Asian um, mythological body, um, she represents, you know, she's, she's, you know, physically represented as vulgar. She's loud. She's humorous. She, you know, she has sex, you know, all these things in contrast to the others who are represented as the ideal femininity or motherhood. Um, you know, she has a real place in subverting these stereotypes and I think what's interesting is that there's like you know to maintain ideal femininity or fem uh, womanhood there is um, a, a sense of violence in maintaining that whereas she is completely the other way um, so that's what drew me to her as well. Yeah it's funny you pick up on the question of violence in relation to the fact that 
even this you know, traditional idealized femininity of motherhood that's associated with being very peaceable and caring, etc., etc., is undergirded by systems of violence that actually keep people in those sorts of positions, right? So there Absolutely. is this kind of in, yeah. like underlying sense of systemic violence, whereas Carly's kind of almost she she almost revels in it kind of thing revels in showing violence for like what it is absolutely and yeah and there's all these fantastic stories which depict this exact point where she you know she's the patron deity of thieves which is an image that i wanted to play on in this poem so there's a great myth a story where she has a dance duel with shiva and there are two tellings. In one telling, she loses this dance battle because she refuses, uh, in the climatic moment of the dance, to raise her leg because it would expose her genitals. Whereas um, in several other tellings, she wins because she does break that taboo and raise her leg. And it's really interesting, like, this is the importance of storytelling. Like, which story do you tell? Because if you choose the latter story, you're telling a fundamentally different story. Niroshini, thank you. Thank you, Eleanor. Next up, we have Lucia Dove, who is a writer and poet from Southend-on-Sea, currently working for Amsterdam University Press and funneling her English literature background into poetry, which has been published in The Tangerine and The Poetry Review. Hello. Hi. How are you doing there? Yeah, I'm good. Great to have you. So what myth or story are you going to give for us today? So today in my poem, I'm rewriting the mythology of Baba Yaga. Uh, she is a crone-like goddess originating from Eastern Europe. Cool. Great. Can't wait. Yaga. In no time at all, three displaced women arrived to somewhere. There was a smell of milk in the air and of lunch on the platform of smoked sprats on black bread. The smell of it all was stifling the mosquitoes, the dark, all the mud, the mulch, the muscles of the trees moving. Once there was, and once there was not, a fairy head bent over under moth-filled light, peeling potatoes with fingernails while picking seeds out of peppers and flicking them to the birds, insects, plant life. One woman cried in fright, let me linger here longer, so the other two women became one, and dipping their hands into their bread-lined pockets, wandered into the forest alone. The smell of the boiled beetroot was delicious, the skin from the heat of the earth and of the breath just peeling off. In the instance that people arrived to this place, liberated from the density of the city to the outskirts, where the thick birch blinds, Pine needles prick sore feet. They arrive in darkness and covered in blood. These people say, I am a recent transplant here. Can I pick the mushrooms that are white? I give good massages. Do you brush your bones at night? We arrive from darkness and covered in blood. Muscles mutate into monsters, into memories that mutate into muscles, into monsters. Lysavetta Annabelle's shadowy grubs, just awakening to life. In the freeze, the roots of everything are bound to the forest floor. In the heat, children cut tiny hands, snipping spiny fruits from an overgrowing patch. They catch, 
kill and eat the first fish. Women say, swim with me in the lake, fetch my shashlik from the fire, let me take your photograph, stand over by the flowers. There amongst the wind-bent trees stands a hut on chicken legs with crooked knees, its giant feet split like an awful starfish. I tell you that Yaga can smell the thoughts of women, moulded into one factory matryoshka as a fat mushroom, grabbing hands tight in her muff and going forth through the ancient firs. Lost in the wreck of snow, a small opening of face behind animal fur whose blood is so hot it toasts the skin and lets out a stink of flesh, from bubbling yeast to fresh bread, from stove to forest to the nostrils of a nose bitten with frost that has not seen the froth of beer for hundreds of years, or felt how cheeks burn in conversation with other curious noses. The woman knocks on the skull-blinking hut, lets me in, lets me out. And so the woman became two, and the third arrived alone and covered in blood, and Yaga just there gently raking the coals with breasts and humming an old tango. And slowly, slowly, the knocks on the door became. Knock, knock, Yablutska, Yablutska, Baba, Yaga, Baba, Baba, Yaga, Yaga. The three women watched as Yaga's locks were picked, hinges oiled, and hairs grew, and stomachs ballooned, and teeth chewed, and Yaga said, Children live, but my horses are dead. Bury them for me, one white, one black, one red, or I will eat the children. A small kitchen and an old flat is still with me. The greasy curtains, the dirty snow still falling, where I fell in love with buckwheat, roasted, cooled, boiled and salted, Cooking is art, vodka warms the blood, kefir settles the stomach, vodka settles the stomach. Bash birch branches on your body for good circulation. Witness the nakedness of a woman as event. A woman cooking, drinking, bashing, dancing, the gristle, the grizzle. Call the dogs and the mothers and their children and feed them buckwheats pouring out from the full sacks by the back door, roast them, cool them, boil them, salt them. This is what they did. The women left the terrible hut in search for three dead horses, a sack of buckwheat in their hands and their bellies stuffed with dill and peppers. The reek of iron, the heat of the hut made eyes sore. Chatter drifts to the rafters, cobwebs licked from crevices. They say, my hut is my body, I sleep on the floor, my home, my bosom, my womb, my tomb, knock on my door. I have never worn a modern ring, taken off my shawl, held down a job, been abroad, torn a muscle from its shell, beheld much at all. The horse is found, the women saved from despair. Yaga sits on a bench and breathes the air so thick with earth that Yaga almost chokes and dies right there. Beautifully read. I'm absolutely hypnotised. So 
what caught my attention really was the fact that yes you say once there was and once there was not but there is this kind of incredible sense of certainty and tangibility about the poem it's very rooted in things that you can kind of feel and touch and smell and taste as well which is like a much neglected sense in literature even though it's a massive way in which we negotiate the world it just felt so familiar to you like did you grow up with these stories I did yeah I grew up with images of Baba Yaga um in storybooks and it's a very striking image of this terrifying looking witch uh living in a in the deep of the forest on a hut on chicken legs that can move around and it, yeah it's got this terrifying um element to it so I don't think you really forget it once you've you've heard those stories the interesting thing about Baba Yaga is that it isn't the story of Baba Yaga. There are many stories in which she she takes a part in. So that's what I wanted to try and create in my poem was just another story that she exists in. Yeah, not a kind of rewriting so much as like a new entry into the like loose constellation that is like Baba Yaga epiphenomenon just kind of emerges out of all of these stories there seems to be this will to sort of not so much redeem but definitely empathize with Baba Yaga I mean is she is she an an evil figure for you that's the thing I really wanted to explore and really why I chose to do this aside from being familiar with it as from a child um but Baba Yaga has this has this kind of reputation of being monstrous, unapproachable, evil. And I don't see her really that way. I see her as quite vulnerable, um, very isolated and misunderstood. And I think this is quite telling of her sort of paradoxical character in that people really don't know how, how to take her. And this comes across in lots of the stories as well. There are lots of different rewritings of stories taken from different angles so you can't really pinpoint it but especially for this poem I wanted to to see her in a, an approachable way and um yeah and look at her vulnerability really as an old woman living alone in a forest yeah there's that kind of irreducible fact of her encountered as a human first rather than a witch goddess crone person. So tell me about the uh, three other women that you mention. The kind of, there is a sense of, of of threeness that runs throughout the poem, which makes it. It reminds me of, of course, instinctively of of the Trinity as well, which plays into this idea of like that. There's there's no certain place that um, that you locate the poem it seems to sort of span times i mean you're you're at the train station but you're also at, in a witch's hut in the middle of the woods and like playing on uh playing on imagery from all kinds of different time periods so there's quite a few different ways um for me to really answer what you've just said and starting with the the idea of the three um it's true i mean in a lot of mythology this the power of three it's a very symbolic um set of of numbers um 
you have the colours red, white and black, which are very prominent in Baba Yaga's, um, Baba Yaga's mythology, um, dawn, uh, day and night as well. And Baba Yaga can, she's a kind of a multiple character who exists within a liminal space, a liminal existence. So Baba Yaga can be the crone, the kind of old wise woman. Um, she can be the young maiden, but she can also be other elements so particularly with the story of uh, Vasilia the Fair um, Yaga turns into a doll which becomes quite essential to the story. Um, When I started thinking about how to approach writing this poem it wasn't until I had reread a short story a Russian short story called Sinbad the Sailor and the uh, author of this his mother actually migrated from central Russia um, to a German town called Weilau. But when they arrived, it was being blanked out. So they wondered amongst themselves, what will this place be called? And they were semi-joking around, saying somewhere, sometime or other, or any old how. And I was really interested in this idea that when they were moving somewhere, they didn't know where they were moving to. And I wanted to to tell the story of these three women, but also tell the story of um, of Sinbad the sailor, who is the protagonist in the short story itself. And so I really wanted to translate that to the poem. So you have the sense in which these women's lives, however rooted they may be in the details of domesticity, are always haunted by this figure who embodies like both a kind of celebration of wildness and of chaos but also a kind of tragedy of the rejection of society and you know whether whether she's been cast out or whether she's chosen her exile as you know is uncertain in your poem especially and there is this sense of you know I, I guess I guess possibility that that it's um frisson undergirding like these these women's lives and I think that's there's a great sort of sense of potential there even even if she is this very kind of like pathetic in the uh, in the etymological sense kind of character yeah and what you said about being uh, cast out by society that's certainly something that um i was interested in going back to the, the short story sinbad the sailor um because the the main protagonist she's a widow and she lives in a very cast out existence um has no money and on her deathbed they find out that she's been rewriting the same poem by pushkin like over i don't know 500,000 times and i just really liked this idea of looking into their lives even though society might not want want us to and might not want us to go to the forbidden forest and but really what can we gain or what do those women gain from going to visit Baba Yaga and it really plays into the original stories in which Baba Yaga exists in and that people will travel to see her to seek her advice and to seek her help because she is very wise and she gives people tasks and if they don't complete these tasks then she can turn into something very fearful Um, and she, she will eat children and awful things like that but if you succeed or you please her and you answer her questions then you gain extraordinary amounts of knowledge as well so I think I was really interested in putting that forward in my poem as well.
Lucia, thank you so much. Last but not least is Joelle Taylor, who is an award-winning spoken word artist, poet, playwright, author and self-described cultural terrorist. Her latest rabble-rousing collection, Songs My Enemy Taught Me, was published in late 2017 by Outspoken Press. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you here. It's really lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, pleasure. So what story have you chosen? Um, I've chosen, chosen The Myth of the Furies, Eumenides Arrhenius, which is basically the story of three infernal goddesses hell-bent on vengeance. Take it away. From the rage of castrated gods born, pale corner boys scrying into tins of super strength tenants, tenants of old ways, the back alley broken bottle ballet ways, the ashtray grins of youth unfound out of the white static of silence, they rise, bride of knives. Their dusk hair hurricane. They came, vaulting waves, hurdling tower blocks, burrowing beneath the skin of the city. They furious ones. They eighth colour. They ugly sister, reviled stepmother, mannish bride, frigid housewife, ungrateful whores. They ill-dressed mistresses, ancient infants, butch, bitches, all that is unfuckable. Slag, hashtag hags, great daughters of chaos, wise children Amen. they are them Arrhenius, the Furies, Eumenides, the risen ghosts of murdered women unravelling into three infernal deities, one a dyke, an aberration uncorrected proof call her Tisiphone, another a woman missing in migration the mother of loss call her Megera, the third an ordinary woman a nothing much fear her the most. Electo. Together they sing. Strippers, sex workers, single mothers, disposable, opposable girls, male order brides, butches and studs, the femmes and the furies, gathered behind us in a swarm, chorus, curse made shape and weight, bastard flesh and breath, they keep the night in their mouths, their veins, alleyways, they hounds of mothers' hate. Holding cock like crucifix will not save you, and now they gift you guilt, my son. A death of a thousand uncertainties, your back slashed into hashtag. They are black ink on black paper, blood for blood. They give birth on battlefields, they give birth to battlefields, they avalanche. See them, their night dance. Riding typhoons on tabloid wings, you have whispered about them for years and now they are here. Dog head panting, the womb and the grave are one. Crack the night in half with their snake whips. Burning blood traces maps onto the dry earth that lead them to you. Two, the story of Tisiphone, avenger of murder. There are those men who would steal the rainbow. Them Jack Rowling boys. Tisiphone was one of those bilingual girls who hard learned the language of the streets, translating kisses into curses, fists into freedom, running from a clutter of Jack Rowling boys, machine guns nursed to chest, their pornographic grins 
a woman splayed, a violet girl laid out, dissected, their jack-rolling smiles connected or a red-lit lane leading to a flick of blue light somewhere south of here that no one speaks about. Evicted from her skin, Tisiphone orbiting, bones left there below, now compass, now clock. When done, they thanked her empty skin, zipping up mouths, smoothing hairlines and stories. A gaggle of giggling police blew bottle over quiet body, all curled in the knuckle of night, raped into the shape of girl, the silencing of the two mouths. And all over the land, cured like ham, all studs, all wrong-walking women, strung up in the back room of his bedsit heart, that he might invade girl body and hoist proud flags, that he may name... Rename her skin in his tongue, you colonist, you Sunday paper columnist, every 26 seconds she is born again. The wild rising of dance dry earth at funeral found face and now she is here. Dust daughter, just behind you, a dry monsoon stalker, she is the filthy quiet, the moment before he does it. Now risen, with her crown of severed cocks, her snake, Pit, her slit throat grin, her song a police siren, an ambulance careering off the coastal road, the wail of a graveside mother, knowing girl lower smile, apartheid. Three, the tale of Electo. You would not expect it of her. A girl stitched from quiet, her skin floral wallpaper in middle age. Her mannequin children gathered at her feet at the photo shoot in Tesco's. She lived an ordinary life in an ordinary town, but as is ordinary for some women, she married a prison. Her teeth in that photograph are a high fence and you cannot see her behind it. But let me remind you of the sound of hand against cheek, face, ribs. Her skin remembers the night. She is measured against his mother. She is his mother. She always warned her of small men, how they take up space in other ways, how his heart is a fist, how his kiss is a fist, how his baby is a fist, how his job is a fist, how his song is a fist, how his fist is a bird beating against a window at rage with his own reflection, how he just wants to be let in. When you beat a mother, you beat infinity into a better shade of nothing much. Your punches will be inherited, passed down on the mother's side. Electo wears wreaths of ovaries around her neck. His hand-delivered selection box of bruises sits tight-lipped on the dressing table. Only the hard centres remain. And now you can call her the Queen of Argos, her flat-pack heart, her occasional table of a body. Call her late and she will come. Call her not and she will come, carrion boy. Bastards queue at her counter. Next. Four. The myth of Megara, the grudging one. She died years 
before she circled her last breath. Somewhere out there on the road from Aleppo, a mother crawling between the broken teeth of the city, a seed. A hand stretched out her dust-palm topography, her child echoing with dreams of water until she reached the sea. Here it is, she said. Here it is. I understand the language of the sea and why it keeps returning. But the boat was a country without a flag, detached from this world, floating in circles, too heavy with dreams to make the crossing. The captain abandoned ship, then the crew, then the world, and they prayed to a god of lost things. Umbilical cords feed worlds. Stretched back centuries, our umbilical, our puppet strings, our threads in a vast tapestry of breathing. And though she threw hers as a lifeline, no one caught it, just watched it silently as it slipped deeper into the ocean, mouth of the ocean. The bubbles that rose above them were crystal bowls. In it, they could see rows of white men, arms crossed. They sank. Dead mothers with ghost children swaddled, as boats circled but did not help. Her last breath is in a museum somewhere. She is dying on repeat on digital cenotaphs. Her scream is photographed for study, her last words pinned down, dissected. The other women who carry their own coffins. The oceans are formed from the tears of the drowning. But know this. Women are made of water, and like water will always find a way. The hairline fracture of his smile, the weakened dam of a woman. And when we die, we rise into rain, thick rain. Those blackening contusion clouds above you are your ancestors seeking vengeance. And now she, tidal wave. Five. You might have seen them, working the gumbo stall in Ferguson serving sedition among the poor boys in okra. Or maybe your eyes met on the red carpet as she snapped, bit off a picture of you in your black dress. Or was it them you glimpsed, tracing cat's cradles around a burning tower block, mistaking wings for ash, the night that Grenfell fell. She is a loco, she is Margareta Neri, she Gulabi Gang, she Henny Sherman, Dutzili Zozo, Katun Khidr, she Daughters of the Sun, she Bibi Aisha, KJ Morris, Lashaya Evans, she Mary Magdalene, she Archon's daughter, she Emmeline, she Solanas, she Wonas, she your mother. Call her. Thank you, that was incredibly powerful. So how did you go about, I guess, selecting what kinds of women you wanted to be emblematic of of the different Furies? Um, well, obviously, the myth of, of the Furies is that they are this kind of embodiment of women's impotent rage and that they stalk... Um, particularly men who've hurt women in some way or the matriarchal line, and then whisper them. The oh, thing that attracted me to them is that they've got no real power. There's no, even though they say blood for blood, it's not they who are spilling the blood. They are just simply going to the people who, who have hurt other women and telling them what they've done. It's this death of a thousand whispers kind of idea. So when I was trying to contemporise that, I was looking at women's stories across the world and there were, two stories straight away that I think felt really needed telling. And one is about um, 
the endemic rape of lesbians in South Africa in particular, but in lots of different countries. And it's all justified on this idea. It's called corrective rape, which is why I call her an unedited proof and an aberration. And the idea is that you can be raped into the shape of a girl. You can be, you know, in made woman in this way. And the other one is the story of um, the millions of women lost in migration within this biggest humanitarian crisis, this huge exodus. And I wanted to talk about them, specifically about what's happening to women in those situations um, and, I, and to zoom in on one of the most uh, powerful stories um, that I've heard about, which is the story of a boat of refugees that sank in between Italy and basically in a part of Europe um, and was circled by all the other navies from Italy and Spain and the UK who simply filmed them and watched them die. Nobody wanted to take responsibility. So I wanted to bring those ideas into it. And then the third one, just being an ordinary woman, that's just based on the story of my own my own family, really. The idea of um, how women kind of deal with things on a daily basis, just, just absorb pain and, you know, and it being ordinary, just something happens in Tesco's. And there is that sense in which we kind of dignify female strength or female dignity under duress, and there is something uh, incredibly powerful in the in the in the indignity and the you know fury of yeah. the fury. It's that it kind of it refuses to cleave to those kinds of senses of moralization. So that actually, the fact that the conditions that cause us to have to yeah. endure and be strong. I wrote a book last year called Songs My Enemy Taught Me, which detailed the story of my own sexual abuse growing up, but also crucially made connections with hundreds of women globally. All kinds of different stories, not just about the sort of sexual terrorism, but about the way women are oppressed throughout the world. And we seem to, particularly with hashtag Me Too moment, we want to talk about, oh my God, um, let's talk about her and what she did. Let's let's focus our kind of um, rage on the fact that she's speaking rather than looking at the things that caused that. So in this kind of myth, we're able to develop this character that can go straight to it. The monstrous feminine is all of our ugliness laid bare, made beautiful, our ugly made beautiful in a way of kind of responding to all of these things. Because uh, I find as well the hashtag Me Too movement almost uh, com confining as well. How so? Um, there's a sense of being corralled. I am always deeply, deeply suspicious as an incredibly left-wing human being <laughs> when there are mass movements and when the people who are perhaps responsible for starting those movements aren't um, talked about much. So this new wave of feminism is about black women. It's being led by black women. And yet, when I look at the Me Too stuff, what I'm seeing is a bunch of very middle-class white women um, on the TV screens and talking about what happened to me in this situation, but not making the connections globally. So we're constantly looking at the small thing, but not the big picture. So I know there's quite a lot I just put into that sentence. But this is why I wanted to look at the Fuhrers, which kind of contains all that unspoken fury of womanhood. And this connection between testimony or rather the inability to testify yeah. to your own suffering and mm. this kind of pent-up rage this like quivering dam that it creates is something that seems almost re-articulated in some iterations of the me too movement because you are getting the sense of like okay it's no less horrifying when uh someone is raped in a hotel room but we also need to 
be talking about the people who clean that room as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to make, and it's a very privileged, um, I mean, this is really not supposed to be an anti hashtag Me Too movement. It isn't. I'm just saying, like, if we're going to say, like, I call them hashtag hags here, let's <laughs> understand the real power of this movement and that, and that these wounds go deep, very, very deep. And not to keep focusing on the smaller story, but to make these global connections. And there is this sense. Um, in in your poem in particular, when you, when you end by listing all of these names, and some of them were familiar and some of them weren't, but the sense was you didn't necessarily need to know the individual details of the individual story. Like the story is 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 the connections, right? The story is the amalgamation, and there is a sense of like grappling with with the extent to which, as you say, sort of violence is a way of making women. Because at one sense, that's that's horrifying. But in another way, it's also kind of true, like in terms of forging those connections and forging womanhood as a category. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to bring up what you were saying about the names at the end, I, I think it is important in a way that you don't know who these women are because I want to ask you why you don't know. Why don't you know who Henny Sherman is? Why don't you know who Aleko is, Gulabi Gang? You must know Valerie Solanas, Eileen Warnos. I'm not talking about you here, Eleanor, but just <laughs> for We're us so to ask spot. ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to ask ourselves, and maybe some, some people will look it up, but I think the most important thing is not what they did individually, but the fact that we don't know who they are. That's the important thing. And that's why I brought in the stuff about Ferguson, because immediately you're thinking... Black, black women. Okay, Ferguson, and then we go on to onto the sort of the red carpet, and then end at Grenfell Tower. And I know that people listening to this work like that's quite a leap between Ferguson and the red carpet and Grenfell Tower. What's the connection? And of course, it's about the intersection of women's experiences. You know, within that, within each of those kind of situations. So really, the Furies is the original cyber campaign against patriarchy written 2000 years ago hashtag me too on a bit of a stone plinth (laughs) thank you so much joelle that's it for this week on bedtime stories for the end of the world you can catch up on all our episodes find out more about our writers and much more besides on our website endoftheworldpodcast.com to keep up with all our work you can follow at Goodbye World Pod on Twitter. You can bother me personally at Eleanor K. Penny. This project is kindly supported by the Arts Council England and the infinite patience of the good folks at Spread the Word. It is produced by Tom McAndrew and from all of us, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>